Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited with our guest today. I mean, we have an entrepreneur here that, uh, you know, has, has done it, you know, building, scaling, financing, crazy Series Bs of hundreds of millions, I mean, you name it, and also building businesses, even in ninth grade. So I think that we're going to enjoy the conversation with this founder, but without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Troy Pospisil. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, great to be here. Thank you for having me. So originally born in Southern California, where the good weather is. So tell us about your upbringings, especially with your hustler, hustler, you know, little businesses that you had going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was very lucky and fortunate to be born in Southern California. I didn't know that other people shoveled snow out of their driveway until pretty late in life. I was very fortunate to have a loving family, uh, two loving parents who were still married, which seems to be uh, an anomaly these days, and uh, loving grandparents who lived by us and were a big part of our upbringing and two brothers uh, who are awesome people and I'm still really close with. I got really interested in business and entrepreneurship and just working in general very early in life. I had a couple of jobs uh, that I got really early. I got a job at a clothing store, actually in a surf shop for a summer, uh, 
which I thought sounded pretty cool, but ended up just being folding clothes after people came through and tore the place apart, trying on clothes and moving things around the store. And then uh, I thought it would be interesting to see a professional environment. So at a pretty young age, got a job at a local law firm in the file room. Uh, I don't think this is a, a concept anymore, but I would file physical papers in a file room and retrieve them when people were requesting information. Uh, but both of those experiences taught me that uh, I should probably try and make sure I got good grades so I could go to college and didn't have to have a job that was really repetitive. Uh, wanted something more interesting and stimulating and a bit more creative. And then got the idea early that uh, being an entrepreneur would be really interesting and exciting. So my first uh, economic journey uh, that I started on, uh, to call it a business, would be a bit generous, but a scheme is probably a better word, was I poked around the internet and I found uh, someone in actually China who was willing to sell me fake Louis Vuitton handbags. And I uh, took my savings and I imported about $1,400 of Louis Vuitton handbags uh, or fake Louis Vuitton handbags, I should say. And I, I lived in Orange County. Uh, where people uh, wanted these things, and I started selling them. And uh, my my best sales strategy is I would set up in the break room at uh, offices, uh, law firm offices, um, you know, consulting firm, accounting firm offices, and ask the office manager to email everyone in the office to come and look at my wares. And in uh, an hour, I would make uh, a couple thousand bucks as a fourteen year old, which was pretty spectacular. I did this for a full summer. And then got a call from a prospective customer uh, to meet them in a parking lot, which, uh, as bizarre as it was, wasn't it wasn't that strange for my business. It was sort of a word of mouth business, and there was a sting operation. I got surrounded by about five people working for a private investigation firm, working for LVMH. Uh, they were curious why I wasn't in school, which was a good question given that the school year had started. I think my tenth grade year had started, and so that was the end of. Um, of my criminal enterprise. <laughs> I had a couple, another, a couple other interesting experiences, but I'll mention one that was a good learning experience. I somehow, uh, about a year later, the following summer, got in touch with someone who was associated with a clothing company called Baby Fat. I don't know if any of your listeners will remember that, but it's the women's line of Fat Farm, which maybe is something people are more familiar with. And they were trying to figure out a way to offload last season's clothing that was still sitting in the warehouse. And uh, they were trying to be a more upscale line for their category. And so I think they had some agreements with some of their retailers that they couldn't sell into the traditional channels like Ross and Burlington Coat Factory. Uh, but they could sell it to me. I was not contractually uh, part of that contract. And so they were willing to sell it to me at 75% off their list price. And I set up a booth at the local fairgrounds. There was a, what we called a swap meet or sort of a uh, ad hoc marketplace that would get set up at the local fairgrounds in Orange County. And I would wake up at five in the morning. Uh, I did this with a buddy of mine. We would drive over there. We bought like a big beach tent type thing and some racks of clothing. And we would set up and we would stand there uh, all day. It was long days just standing around, haggling with customers, trying to tell them why this pair of baby fat jeans or baby fat t-shirt was the thing for them. And uh, we would do great. In a weekend, I'd make a few thousand dollars as a 15, 16-year-old. So that was another great experience, just learning about hard work, uh, learning about sales, learning about haggling, 
uh, learning about pricing and margins. And if I gave a discount, what would that do to my margins at a, at a pretty young age? So that was a great experience. Uh, and uh, I did a, a couple other funny things, but I'll, I'll skip over all the little schemes I came up with in high school, but uh, ended up going to NYU for college after I finished high school. I was really lucky to uh, get accepted there and be able to go to New York. Before we, we talk about New York and also the the experience that you had there working for this pet company as well, what do you think triggered uh, you to really enjoy so much the business world and, and the entrepreneurial world? I mean, was there like a specific moment where you said, oh, I really love this thing? Uh, I think part of it was the experience of having a jobs at the clothing store in the law firm that I didn't particularly enjoy and realizing <laughs> that maybe having a job wasn't the thing for me. You know, I was also just uh, lucky enough to be born where I was born. It, Orange County is a pretty entrepreneurial place. And I had a number of good friends whose families were entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, I got exposed to that as a potential career option and was just really attracted to it. You know, it, it seemed like you could be creative, come up with your own ideas, uh, create products, create businesses out of those ideas. Versus just being one thing for your whole life and just being sort of in a, in a particular swim lane for your whole career. I liked the idea of the creativity and the variety and just being able to come up with ideas and go, go make them happen. Nice. So then let's talk about making things happen. Because when you were in NYU, you started working, you took this gig with a, with a pet food company that was looking to expand in the East Coast. And one of the things that you did was just say, fill up a shuffle, bag, a shuffle bag and and then go around, you know, 100 stores knocking door to door to see if they would, uh, you know, enroll, you know, with the, with the company. So I guess my question there is, what did you learn about sales and about knocking on every door that you could uh, in order to really get, you know, business done? Yeah, that a great question. So just to give a little bit of background, uh, so I was at NYU. I, you know, wanted some spending money and I wanted to help pay for my tuition. I had a lot of friends that were getting jobs at coffee shops or restaurants. And, you know, I thought back to my time selling and thought, you know, there's there's probably a better way to make more money in, in the same amount of time that you would get paid hourly, busing tables or pouring coffee or or whatnot. And so I got an opportunity uh, with a, a pet company that sold pet, that manufactured and sold uh, pet treats or dog food primarily. There's a California company that was sort of early on creating organic dog food, and they were trying to open in the New York market. They had set up a relationship with a distributor, but they needed to have a salesperson on the ground actually go talk to store owners and convince them to carry the product. So I got a job as a contractor doing that. The distributor gave me a list of all of the stores that they had on their delivery route uh, in Manhattan, and that was about 115 stores. And I literally had a duffel bag with sample products. So I had bags of all these different types of dog treats, and I went door to door, and I would walk into the pet store. So I have been to every pet store in Manhattan, at least as of you know, 15 plus years ago, I'm sure there's been a lot of turnover uh, <laughs> since then. Uh, but I, I went door to door and I took, I got a subway card. I got, you know, a monthly subway pass and I literally wore through the leather of my shoes. I know that's sort of an expression, but I literally uh, wore through my shoe leather trouncing around New York. And I would walk in and say, can I speak to the manager? Can I speak to the owner? 
And I would give them my pitch, which was a very basic pitch. You know, these are organic. They're all natural. You know, the meat is high quality. It's a great price. And if there were dogs walking around the store, I would open up a bag and give them a treat. Or look how much the dog likes it. You know, in hindsight, not a very complicated sale. These folks have shelf space to fill. They're not super averse to trying new things. So I was very successful in getting most folks to fill an order. But, you know, just a lot of good learnings, not being scared to walk in, ask to speak to the decision maker, uh, getting comfortable, making your pitch, hitting on the different uh, points of value, you know, to, to a somewhat small extent, trying to read the room, understanding which points of your pitch are going to resonate with the person you're selling to, you know, selling to a really high-end pet boutique in Tribeca is really different than what a store owner in Morningside Heights cares about. I had sort of a funny experience where I started talking to this one owner in a rougher neighborhood in the northern end of Manhattan, and I was telling him about my organic dog treats. And, you know, he sort of like, I'm, I'm not sure my customers care about that. He's like, mostly what I sell are spiked dog collars. And I'm just trying not to get robbed. And I was like, what do you mean? And he literally takes a shotgun from under the counter, pulls it out and puts it on the table. And he's like, this is what I mean. <laughs> uh, I think the customer you're targeting is different than, um, than who I'm serving and the types of products that people are looking for when they come in my store. Uh, but just a great experience and not being scared to go knock on doors and uh, pitch your product and hear what the customer has to say firsthand. That's amazing. Now. In this case for you, I mean, after completing your studies at NYU and then also studying in China where, you know, you also had your gig there with, with one of your friends that you ended up selling, basically what happened is that you went into corporate. I mean, that's something that, that I'm a little bit surprised by because here you are, super, super entrepreneurial, you know, type of driven. So why did you go into corporate instead of like maybe like launching your own thing right away? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll, I'll start by saying I'm really glad that I did. Uh, I learned a lot in the years that I spent being a management consultant and working in private equity. But the long and short of it is I had a handful of professors that I really respected and had built good relationships with who were older and wiser than I was. And NYU is a really special school in, in, the, in the economics and business departments. You have a lot of professors who have real working experience and maybe teach part-time, but are working at banks or, you know, working in industry. So you get a really real world perspective from the teaching staff there. And I, I got the advice, look, what you're doing is super interesting, but if you really want to, you know, make it big, you really want to learn how large companies operate. You want to build a network within corporate America and gain some of those skills and go through those training programs that other people are basically going to pay you to train you. Uh, so I took that seriously and I went through the interview process and was lucky enough to get a job in management consulting where I spent the first two years of my career. Now, you know, one thing that is very interesting is you did management consulting and then you did private equity. And some of the um, best entrepreneurs that I get to interview is people that either have experience on investment banking or in consulting or on private equity or let's say VC. So out of those three, you have two of them. So, I mean, you, you're a very dangerous uh, entrepreneur, I would say. Well, it, depend, it depends who you ask. But those are great experiences early in your career. Uh, you know, in both of those experiences, you get to see so many different companies, get exposed to various industries, a lot of different business models, you get to work with a lot of different people that have different skills that can train you 
on what they know. You can learn from them. You know, in, in consulting, you're going from project team to project team. I worked on projects for Toshiba, Toyota, Nike, Life Technologies. And so just seeing really scaled problems for big companies that are the, the big players in their industries and working on cost savings initiatives, operations problems, big technology implementations, M&A integrations. That was all in my consulting life. Uh, so you just learn a lot really, really quickly. And you gain you know, the basic skills you need as a business professional, how to solve problems with data, how to analyze that data in Excel, how to summarize and present uh, the key points to decision makers, how to gather information from stakeholders. Um, so there's just a lot of good raw skills that are very relevant to being a business leader um, as an entrepreneur or you know, working at a company. And private equity is sort of more of the same, um, working really, really long hours on a lot of planes, but getting the opportunity to work with really smart people on really complicated, interesting issues across a bunch of different industries, getting to meet a lot of different, really interesting entrepreneurs. And in private equity in particular, starting to think hard about how do you finance a business? How do you think about investing in different business initiatives, the return that you're going to get on those investments, do that analysis uh, accurately? And I I think in particular, as an investor, starting to think really hard about business models. What's a good business? Uh, There's a very big difference between a good idea or a good product and a good business. And so just and I was, I was, again, very lucky to have landed at a firm called HIG Capital, which I couldn't have more respect for that firm. Really, really smart people. Um, the way they invest, really interesting. And it was awesome to be exposed to. And some of my best friends today are people I met at, at both the consulting firm and the private equity firm. So, so, so talking about what you just said there, what is the difference between a good idea and a good business? That's a great question. So, you know, a good idea or a good product um, is is necessary but not sufficient to build a good business. Ultimately, a good business has to have good economics. And the two key economic things that I would look at now as an investor, if I was evaluating ideas as an entrepreneur, are the margin profile of the product you're selling. You know, Can you sell the product for more than it costs you to create the product? And then the customer acquisition cost. Uh, that, you know, that's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs fail to think about uh, is, can you scale the business in, in, a, in an efficient way with capital? So can you acquire customers? And are you going to get enough in terms of the lifetime value of what you're selling those customers to make that a sustainable business? And you know, as, as a very real-time example, the changes that Apple just made to the data that they're willing to provide to users or advertisers on the Facebook platform has really changed the economics of customer acquisition for a lot of consumer tech businesses. And so it's totally changed the math and made a lot of businesses that previously were sustainable, that had reasonable economics in terms of their customer acquisition costs relative to the lifetime value of the customers they're acquired. And, and now they can't make that math work. So a lot of these consumer apps, and I won't name any names, are great products. People buy them, they use them, they love them. But now that their customer acquisition cost is so much higher on a per user basis, they're no longer good businesses. And so it's, uh, it's just, a, especially as an investor, you learn really, really quickly uh, that there's a big difference between a good product and a good business. And then as an investor, uh, additionally, a really 
important foundational learning is there's a really big difference and sort of the same learning, but there's a big difference between a good business and a good deal uh, and a good investment. You can have the best business and overpay on valuation, and that that can be that will end up being a bad deal. And you can make money as an investor investing in subpar businesses for the right price. There's you know there's it's not always true, but for the most part, there's a there's a fair price for almost any asset. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process, and it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then let's talk about good businesses. Let's talk about a business called Entra that I think you know very well. You know, let's talk about your baby. Let's talk about Entra. So, so tell us about, you know, the, 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 when Entra, you know, came knocking, you know, as an idea and how you went, you know, about executing because, you know, I'm sure at the HIG you were making a good living uh, and, you know, taking a haircut, you know, on the income side and, and taking a dive, you know, and the leap of faith was probably not an easy one, you know, to, to take on. So, so walk us through that, through that process. Well, maybe I'll talk about the idea first. And if you're interested, I can talk about my personal decision-making process on Great. taking that leap, if you want to chat about that. So, you know, I was an investment professional at HIG, and I was inspired to start Entra based on two problems I experienced in my personal life. Um, as a professional. So the first was high volume routine contracting. So as a big business, uh, especially in financial services, we had a really high volume of routine contracts that were part of our day-to-day life. So these are contracts that are five-ish pages that we have to review, negotiate lightly, uh, execute, and then ideally keep track of what we agreed to. And this was happening literally thousands of times a year across our organization, across various contract types, non-disclosure agreements, non-reliance letters, vendor contracts, engagement letters. And it was really time consuming. It had to be done well. Uh, Ideally, it was done consistently. And ideally, we would keep track of everything we agreed to so we could easily answer questions that implicated requiring data from across agreements, like where do we have active non-solicits in place? So like, what are all the companies where we can't currently actively solicit potential employees from? 
and that was a that was a problem, and it was a really time consuming problem. And I again, I was very lucky to live in San Francisco. I had a lot of really good friends working in enterprise software, in product, in sales, in engineering, and it was just thinking a lot about technology. And it seemed like an an interesting problem, and one where if you combined technology uh, with an alternative labor model, which you were starting to see pop up with the likes of companies like Uber, that you could create a product that was faster, higher quality. Uh, lower cost and really created more value because you digitized the workflow, which gives you the opportunity to capture a lot more data. Uh, the second problem that I dealt with on a day-to-day basis, which we also solve as a business, is keeping track of information and in really complex corporate contracts. So as an M&A professional, you're dealing with purchase agreements, credit agreements, operating agreements, and, uh, among a long list of others like leases and employment contracts. But it's very often, many, many times a day, you're asking yourself, gosh, what did we agree to in that contract? What is our, when is our reporting requirement? What did we agree to in that reporting requirement? You know, in this type of agreement with this type of counterparty, what have other people in my organization agreed to in the past on these really key terms? And we, we weren't able to do that because the state of affairs for most businesses is that they spend a lot of money and time negotiating complex contracts, they execute them, it becomes a PDF. And then, you know, ideally, uh, they save it on a shared drive somewhere where everyone has access to it. But even that's generally not the case. And so I, I saw that and thought, you know, again, this is a really interesting problem where software could be really valuable, taking complex corporate contracts, turning them into structured data, and then delivering a digital workflow tools around that data so that you could proactively and easily manage your affirmative obligations in all of your important agreements with your important counterparties, easily reference your restrictions across all of your agreements, and easily benchmark across all of the contracts within your organization, which if you do that in an organized, structured fashion, becomes a real asset uh, and a real strategic advantage for your company because you can negotiate more effectively on your most important agreements, which have real economic implications for your company. So now, now that we understand, you know, and that uh, you kind of like walked us through the problems that you were seeing and how to really tailor a solution, perhaps tailor a solution that would address that, why did you decide to take the leap of faith with this? Yeah, so I'll talk a, a little bit about my personal journey. Um, you know, first and foremost, I thought I really wanted to go back to being an entrepreneur. You know, I took the advice of my mentors and I got great experience. I had built what I think is a really good network. I had now a lot of good friends from, you know, that I built in consulting and private equity. Uh, you know, I didn't, you know, I was still relatively young, but I, I'd learned enough that I felt confident that I could go out on my own and with the help of my network, sort of figure it out. I had the, the sort of raw skills that I'd wanted to develop working for uh, sophisticated institutions. And I was, you know, I was in my late 20s. I didn't have a mortgage. Uh, I was engaged, but not yet married. I was really frugal in my life. And I thought saving was really important if I wanted to be an entrepreneur one day. Uh, that's a piece of advice I don't hear a lot of people give entrepreneurs, but save uh, when you're working, because that's going to give you that window of time where you can go uh, take a chance, not take a salary for some number of years. 
And, you know, a lot of people give entrepreneurs the advice that just stop spending money, move into your parents' basement, eat ramen noodles. You know, I think that that can be a solution to taking a leap of faith. I think ideally you want to stay engaged with your network socially um, because your network can, especially when you're starting an enterprise business, um, selling B2B can be really, really valuable. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I saved enough money that I was able to continue spending time socially with the people in my network. Uh, my fiance now wife at the time, I was also very fortunate, had a really stable job. And so we sort of made a decision as a, as uh, you know, a, and family to be that it was an okay risk for us to take for me to step off and not take a salary for some indeterminate period of time. Uh, I had savings. She had a really stable job as a corporate lawyer and I could take a few years and, you know, take a big swing. Uh, and I, I just knew for me personally, having had a couple entrepreneurial experiences, having thought thinking for years about trying to get back to being an entrepreneur that if I didn't take this chance, I would really regret it. I had a great job, a really economic, uh, you know, it was a, it was, I was getting paid well. It was really interesting. If there's, if there's any job to have working in middle market private equity is super fun and interesting. Um, but uh, I just knew if I didn't take that leap that I, I would really regret it. And I, there was no better time for me to do that. No mortgage, no kids. I teed myself up with savings. And I was young, but I, you know, again, I felt like I'd learned a, a little bit and enough to hopefully be able to figure out the challenges that would no doubt present themselves. Now, talking about Ontra here, so taking a leap of faith, you go at it. How do you uh, guys make money at Ontra? So we were an enterprise uh, business. We're B2B. So we have two core businesses. Uh, first is what we call contract automation. Uh, so we partner with large organizations to take over their high volume routine contracting as a as a full stop global solution. So uh, they have high volume routine contracts. They need them marked up, negotiated, and ideally uh, turned into structured data so that they can do benchmarking or reporting against what they agreed to in those contracts. They want it done at a high consistent quality. They really care about speed and ideally uh, cost. They want to save money from any of the potential alternatives. And so that's the solution that we deliver. To those to those companies, you know, Blackstone, as you know, is one of our investors. They were a big customer prior to becoming an investor. They're a global organization. They have you know ten thousand plus high volume routine contracts that they have to process as part of various business processes every year, and they need a solution for getting that done quickly, cost effectively, and a high consistent quality on a global basis. And so we're we're a consumption based pricing model. We charge on a flat fee per contract basis, and it's literally that simple for the customer. And I was going to ask you, I mean, Black, Blackstone also, uh, a, a big investor here. I mean, uh, how much capital have you guys raised to date? We've raised about $250 million over two rounds of financing. I'll sort of joke a little bit. You know, I came from private equity where we valued businesses primarily based on EBITDA or EBIT, if they had a big CapEx component. And I was, came from the school of thought that a business was supposed to generate cash flow. Um, I hadn't really been exposed in my career to this world of, uh, you know, businesses being valued primarily on revenue growth, um, you know, being valued for the underlying technology that they've developed sort of, to me, it was sort of all cash flow. I was from the school of thought of Warren Buffett, Seth Klarman, Howard Marks. That was sort of my professional world. And so when I 
set out to build a business. I was sort of modeling it on the the type of success that I'd seen businesses achieve, which is building a business that achieves some level of scale, good, consistent growth, but you know some level of profitability so that it could stand on its own two feet. And we started down that path. When we started the business, we did need some startup capital, uh, which was which was really helpful. We raised from about thirty of our friends and family. Uh, that was great because we engaged our network and engaged them in a way that they didn't just want to see us succeed because they cared about us, but now they had sort of an economic incentive to see us succeed. So we raised from a lot of people that were in the industries that we thought were going to be really helpful to us in terms of uh, uh, as we started to sell our product. And then we sort of ran lean for five years. And there are no doubt pros and cons from that experience that I could talk about forever. But at a high level, running lean makes you really disciplined in the early days. Uh, You've got to have unit economics that makes sense. Can't get too far over your skis on that. Uh, And you get really creative when you, on sales and marketing strategies, on, you know, scaling resources you need for any function within your business. Uh, I mean, we were watching every single penny. Uh, And that, that was a good, that was a good bedrock. Uh, for making sure that we were sort of built the business and the culture around making sure that we were, you know, re- relatively frugal. And so we did the friends and family that was sub a million dollars. And then we sort of built a business for five years and we more or less ran it broke break even. We had good, strong, consistent growth. We tried to invest in growth. And we came up with really creative ways to do sales and marketing. In large part, it was me sleeping on friends' couches, flying all over the world uh, for five years, running myself ragged. Uh, but and then we got it done. And then you know we built a lot of technology, and without really realizing it, we sort of were a high growth tech company. That wasn't how we thought about it. That wasn't what we set out to do. But our numbers and the amount of software that we built and the, the value that we were delivering to our customers uh, resulted in a number of um, technology investors starting to reach out. And that's sort of when I became a little bit more wise to the idea that technology investors are really focused on revenue growth. Um, you know, the smarter technology investors are still really disciplined about unit economics and looking at your customer acquisition costs relative to the lifetime value of your customers. But if you're investing uh, intelligently in R&D and in customer acquisition, that's going to have a decent payback it's okay to have negative uh, mar- negative net margins or negative EBITDA. Uh, so that was, an, that was an interesting sort of learning for me and development in my professional career. And we, you know, we talked to a handful of technology investors and we were fortunate enough to partner with Battery Ventures. And we partnered with two folks there, Chelsea Stoner and Paul Morrissey, both of which joined our board. And uh, they were a great partner. So they did a $40 million round and that was, our series, we call it our Series A because it was our first institutional capital, but we'd been, as I mentioned, in business for five years and were a decent-sized business at that point. Nice. And then, obviously, Blackstone, and, and, and there you have, you know, an um, incredible rocket ship that you're riding. Now, anything that you could share in terms of, like, the size of the business, number of employees, or anything else? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I prefer not to share revenue, not to be too coy, but, uh, yeah. you know, we're our revenue warrants the $200 million that Blackstone recently invested in the business. 
we're coming up on 250 employees right now. That's a, a global team. So we've got people in the US, Europe, and Asia, and we're hiring aggressively. So if you're a smart, talented, kind, curious person, uh, we're hiring across functions, R&D, sales, account management. We'd love to talk to you. Amazing. Now, one question to, to finish off here uh, that I'd like to ask you here, Troy, is imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that time, you know, eight years ago where you were, you know, thinking about maybe making that leap of faith uh, from HIG, the company that you were working at. And, and you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger self. And you were able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching the company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. I'm my own worst critic, uh, which isn't super healthy all the time. But, you know, take time to appreciate, you know, savor the moment, savor the wins, celebrate more for yourself, celebrate more with your team. I'm impatient. Uh, I'm always, you know, it doesn't matter what just happened, how big the win was. My instinct is what's next? What's next? What's next? You know, how else can we improve? What's the next customer we can add? What's the next hire we can make? Um, and I'm very focused on the here and now and the what is, what is the next step to drive forward in almost an irrational, insatiable way, which is can be great, um, but can be a bit can be a bit wearing on yourself and your team. So just, you know, have fun. Uh, this has been a really, really fun eight years. I've been super fortunate. Our team is awesome. I've been really lucky to build a great, to help be a part of building a great culture and a great team. I have a ton of respect and learn from the people I work with every single day. Have I, I love being in the enterprise because we sell to really sophisticated, challenging customers, which to me is really fun um, to sell the, the most sophisticated, demanding customers in the world. And just to, you know, keep keep the pressure on, work hard, always think about continuous improvement across everything you're doing. But, you know, just every once in a while, take a step back, appreciate it, relax a little bit and uh, and have fun because it's short. I've been, you know, I've been on this journey for eight years with Entra. It feels like yesterday that me and my two co-founders were working out of the dining room my apartment, Russian Hill in San Francisco. So it goes, it goes by fast. And so just have fun. Amazing. Now for the people that are listening, Troy, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, great question. You can find us at uh, Uh So, you know, please check us out on our website. Uh, if you want to reach me, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm, you know, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to find me. I'm, I'm not, uh, I hate to admit I'm not really on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, but uh, I am on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, hey, Troy, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. It was fun to walk down some old memories. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.